The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host, and for the next hour, we're going to talk about shooting, specifically shooting, and everything else that is uh, involved in shooting. I've got uh, two guests on right now, and I'm really anxious to get to them, so we're going to get right at it. First guy I want to introduce is Ray Gross, captain of the USA team FTR shooting team, and uh, Derek Rogers, the individual winner of the World F-Class FTR championship. Guys, thanks for being on. Hi, Kelly. Glad to be here. Thanks, Kelly. Okay, so I'm going to talk to Ray first, so everybody will get to uh, recognize his voice, and then when he speaks, they'll know who he is. Uh, Ray, um, do me a favor. Just give me just a little bit of background, maybe a minute or so, of of how you got to where you are, why you're into firearms, and and what kind of shooting you've done prior to uh, Team USA. Well, I, I mean, I grew up on a farm, and so I, I had a rifle in my hand from my earliest age. My dad used to take me out hunting, um, you know, and, and about 12 years old or so, I got my own 22, and, you know, pretty much all summer long, I was carrying that thing around. I didn't, I didn't know that there was competitive shooting until I was almost, I don't know, 26, 27. Uh, coincidentally, it was when I first got married too. So I'm not sure if there's a, a link there or not. And <laughs> I, I, I met some guys. I met some guys. I I bought a rifle and I joined the local sportsman's club to practice. You know, just to practice for uh, uh, hunting. And a particular rifle I bought was an M14. And and one of the guys at the club came out, uh, happened to see me shooting, and says, "Hey, you should you should come out with us and uh, shoot some matches." So I got started uh, service rifle shooting, did that for several years, um, moved on to Palma rifle. I was on a t- 2003 Palma team that went to uh, Great Britain. And um, then I decided I wanted to coach. So I was coaching for a while. I coached a number of American matches, eventually worked my way onto the Palma team as a coach. And then also along the way, I kind of dabbled in the F-class shooting all along. Um, not not quite as serious as some of the other guys at the, in the in the early years, um, but in 2013 I was on the F class rifle team, the FTR team. Uh, I was the Rutland coach, and I won I won the Rutland for uh, in the FTR category. And I decided um, I decided that I should put my name in the hat to be captain, and uh, that's how we got to where we are right now. 
That's a terrific story, and uh, it, it's a great synopsis of how you go from being just a kid who who loved to carry a twenty two around to being the uh, world champion. Uh, Derek, it's your turn. Now tell us a little bit about uh, how you got where you are. Okay, uh, similar to Ray, I grew up shooting air guns and twenty twos and hunting and uh, was brought up you know, at a really early age, actually going out hunting. And so as I, I progressed and I wanted to shoot more and more, um, in the off-season, I started shooting F-class. I, I, I joined a local shooting club, and, and I found out I, I was competitive, and I was able to connect with several of the better shooters around, um, one of them being Brad Sauvet. He reached out. He was going to come out to the Whittington Center and shoot in 2007 at, at a national event held there. And he needed a local shooter because uh, one of his shooters wasn't showing up. So uh, I shot for him, and we stayed in contact, and we all joined up together. And uh, I eventually joined on the Team Sinclair team, and uh, which is another team that, that Ray's part of. And... Um, Sort of the rest is history. You know, we we found out we were competitive, and now we do this on a national and international level. And boy, do you do it. Uh, One of the things that I want to talk about, and we'll get to uh, enough time to get to all of it, is that you both mentioned competitive. Um, You can't get where you guys are in your particular chosen field without being not just competitive, but super competitive, because it's too easy to say, yeah, I'm not going to go to the range today. I'm not going to work. I know how much time you guys have put into getting to the 2017 World Championships, because I've been along for the ride since I came on as a gold sponsor back in, I think it was 2014. So I've seen the last three years of preparation and what it takes, uh, just from an outsider's point of view, of course. But I, I, I've been keeping up with everything that you guys have done. Uh, Ray, how do you get everybody to buy into this? I mean, I know that, that some guys are more interested in other things. You had 30 guys, basically, who, who had a chance to shoot on this eight-man team. And, and that was basically the goal, was for all of these 30 guys to make that eight-man team. How did you get them all to buy into what it took to get a world championship team? Um, I, what I found over the years is you kind of got to meet people where they are. You can't, you can't, you can't like push them. You got to kind of find where they're at, what their interests are, you know, what, what's motivating them, and then try to uh, uh, just keep them pointed in the right direction. So, a lot of the stuff I did, I constantly would send out. Uh, little notes here and there when I'd see things. You know, the Super Bowl uh, is a, a great example this last year where um, right down to the very end, um, you know, one team was, was winning and then at the very end another team won. And, and it's, you know, keep giving them little tidbits here and there. You know, never give up. Keep your mind focused on what your job is, not what the other teams are doing, not if another shooter's having some trouble, not the, the target next to you. Focus on your next shot. And so constantly put that sort of thing out in front of them uh, so, that, so that they would have that building up in their head, building up in their mind. Now, as far as the competitiveness, yeah, when it comes down to picking, I mean, we're really splitting hairs. 
the difference between the number eight guy and the number nine guy is, you know, probably the third decimal point. Um, I mean, if we had such a thing, uh, it, it's just they're so close, and you could probably you could probably swap them. I had a chance between uh, since since we got back, I talked to the number nine guy, and I asked him, you know, you know, if if he thought um, if he thought if we if we would have changed out any personnel, if we would have done as good, and he says he said no, he says you know we did. We came in with what with the best team we had, um, and and the you were there. You saw it. The, the result was close. I mean, there was no margin for error anywhere, and and so it's it's a hard thing for the guys who are not getting picked. But I tried myself. I've been on a lot of teams. I haven't always been picked either. So I tried to give them a little respect in the sense of I went out and talked to the guys who weren't going to get picked beforehand, before I announced the guys who did, just so they knew it was coming, knew, knew what the situation was. Um, and I think, you know, little things like that continue to help the morale, and that morale feeds the entire team as well. Well, a testament to you is that there were 30 guys with uh, eight guys shooting on the USA team in in the team match and then four more guys shooting on the for the Rutland Cup which were all members of team USA. So there were basically uh, uh 10 or so guys who showed up in Canada who didn't get to shoot for the the last team matches, either in the Rutland or, and there were some disappointments. Everybody wanted to go there, wanted to shoot. I know that, but 99% of the guys took it with grace and, and did whatever they could do to contribute, to help the team win. Uh, unfortunately, there was one guy who chose not to go that way because he was disappointed, but uh, you know, that happens. You don't, you don't foresee it when, when you're building a team like that. Um, I think probably, uh, when somebody bails and, and just decides, well, I'm done and, and takes off, he'll probably never have another chance to, to be on the team again. I don't know. That would be It would be hard for me to, to give him three years' worth of a look to, for him to bail at the last minute again. But, Derek, uh, there's a camaraderie among all of the team members. You're not all close to each other in proximity, so you don't get to spend a lot of time except when you had team functions, how do you build that kind of camaraderie with your fellow shooters? Or is it just something that, man, everybody's out for the same goal, so you have something in common immediately? Well, we do have a lot in common um, just right from the get-go, but we are also competing against each other through this this process of a four-year cycle. So we're actually shooting for against each other for a shooting position on the team. But we also recognize that Ray has a lot of vital roles within the team, whether it be scoring or plotting or other 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 jobs that need to be taken uh, into account. So uh, it's it's bigger than just a, being a shooter on the team and getting to know the shooters. There's only one way to do it, and that's spend time with them. And I think through this cycle, that's what we've done. We've we've practiced. Uh, we've met up at various ranges across the country. We've spent time with each other. We've gone out and eat dinners together. We've, you know, we've 
we've done a lot of team building exercises um, in just in general with, with not only the members but the members of their families and that's important because I don't have to wonder if one of my teammates has my back I know they do because we're friends and that's that's the way it's going to be now and it wasn't always that way so this cycle has been really a refreshing um, experience with with Ray as the leader and, and I've got a whole team full of guys whether they shot on the eight-man team or they're just on Team USA, fulfilling another very important role. It's, it's been a very uh, uh, positive experience. Well, uh, you know, the results were exactly what you were hoping for. Uh, I know that nobody took for granted that you were going to go to uh, Connaught and just blow everybody away. I don't think that that, the fact that um, Australia was in the lead going into the last part of it, um, that Canada was right on your heels and South Africa was there. I don't think that was a surprise to anybody. Uh, and I think that that's a testament to everybody's on the team's ability to do exactly what Ray said, not worry about the last shot, not worry about what the guys are doing next to you. Um, I really commend you guys as a team and you as a captain, Ray, to be able to instill that because, you know, comebacks like you guys made just don't happen every day in this sport. There are a lot of people that looked at that score and said, oh, it's over. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that no one on the team looked at that score and said, uh, it's over. Um, so that's a testament to you. We've talked about the, the psychology of shooting and how you guys psych- psychologically got to where you at. Let's talk to... <laughs> Sorry, sounded like I was from the inner city there for a minute. <laughs> it made me laugh. <laughs> so let's talk about how you guys... Um, were different than 99% of the teams. And I only say 99 because I didn't get a chance to watch every team, but I did watch Canada, I did watch Australia, and I did watch um, South Africa quite a bit because they were close. You guys had a different way of doing things. Ray, talk about why, one, you could add windage on and then hold from there, unlike Canada, who arguably had the two best shooters in Canada being their win coaches. Yes, probably the reason that they're the best shooters is because they were the best wind readers too. But the fact is, is they opted not to have their best shooters on the line and have them coaching. No one will argue how important a win coach is when you're shooting at 900 meters or 1,000 yards. Uh, Why did you guys develop a non-Palma technique of one, letting the shooters dial their own windage as opposed to having the coach reach over and do it, and two, putting windage on as a basis and then holding from there. Well, the, uh, as far as the first part goes, that really wasn't by design. It was the, the coaches actually were supposed to be dialing it, but what was more important to us is that the shooters find a good spot, a good level spot on the ground where that would give them a good, you know, a good base to get a good shot. You know, the, the rifle needs to, the bipod needs to be on a fairly level surface to, to maintain a good elevation for that rifle, okay? So th- when, you're go- when you go up to the firing point, a lot of times there's, there, you know, the firing point's not level. So we, we, we really stress to the shooters, find, find a good spot, 
the coach will move over to you. Well, the coaches found it easier just to tell the shooters to dial, to what to dial on the gun rather than moving over to them. So, so that was a little bit of a, um, not by design, but it, it worked all right. The second day, we actually put the shooters in charge of making their own elevation adjustments. Um, we had tried to do it centrally, you know, plotting and having the plotters tell us, hey, he's trending high, trending low. But we, as we looked at that, we were still losing elevation shots. So, you know, nobody knows their rifle better than the, the guy who owns it. So we, we put the shooters in charge of it. Uh, we just told them, hey, you let the coach know before you reach up and adjust it. But you're in charge of deciding when to adjust it. Now, as far as the dialing the, the Windy John and then, and then calling, um, having them hold off, it's, it's a matter of speed. Um, we can tell them to aim off a certain amount um, based on the different wind conditions that, that may come up while that shooter is shooting. So we, oftentimes we'd have, let's say, two minutes dialed onto the scope, and we may have them hold anywhere from a quarter to a half to, to a minute, and sometimes way out on the edge of the black, which is like two, two and a half minutes out there. Um, the, the reason why is, is it's just quicker. It's quicker. Um, I think the less you touch the scope, the better off you are. Um, and, and so that's how, that's how we, we kind of landed on, on that method of doing it. You know, it seemed to work. And, and I will give one instance where I saw where having the coach reach over and dial windage for the shooter doesn't work. I was watching Canada. They were right next to us, and, and, and Will Chu was the coach. And just as he reached over to make an adjustment, the shooter shot. So Will had seen something that he felt like needed to be adjusted for. The shooter wasn't aware that he was in process to make that change and shot. So they missed something. Now, whether it was just one click and a quarter minute, that's still enough to make the difference between a five and a four or a five mm-hmm. and a V. So um, I think that the way that, you know, Team USA ended up doing it, whether it was by plan or not, I think that that ended up being in their favor because those conditions were pretty switchy down there. Derek, talk about how you, and I know we talked about this at the King of Two Mile, you, you, you as the shooter have the last word. And because you know what you're seeing, you know what you're holding, and you know where your gun's shooting, um, how do you work with a coach and within the confines of how and when to shoot? And um, how does that play into your mindset of I'm in control of my destiny? Well, as a team shooter, I'm really not. Um, in King of King of Two Mile, it's a little different. It was a different situation, um, but. During the team events of, of an F-class match, I'm 100% under the command of the coach. So what I'm listening for is I'm, I'm tuning everybody else out, and I'm listening for my coach. And I can give you an example. Like Steve Harden was my coach in several of those relay lines. He's the only voice I'm hearing, and I'm waiting for him to tell me what the call is because as he's telling me, he's also getting feedback from Ray and, and Brian Litz and um, possibly other sources through the headset. So they're coming up with a wind call, 
and I'm just waiting for him to give me the command. And what I'm doing as a shooter is I'm anticipating where that call is going to be. So while they're doing all their uh, uh, checks and, 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 you know, checking with each other on what they think it should be, I also have a pretty good guess where it's going to come up. So if I think it's going to be maybe two left, I'm kind of getting set up on two left. And the coach may give me a correction. He may say, Derek, shoot one left. Well, I don't have to make much of an adjustment from my hold from where I think it's going to be. So it helps speed things up, but totally under the command of a coach. I really want to make this point. Um, I really love the fact that you explain that because people don't understand. But uh, in a win coach, they're not making suggestions. Uh, It's your responsibility to shoot exactly where the coach tells you because that's the only way that he knows whether what he's seeing is accurate or not. If you're saying if he tells you two and you shoot one and it, it doesn't go exactly where he plans and he doesn't know that you didn't hold exactly where he told him, he doesn't know how to make that next shot go where it's supposed to. And so it's really a, a matter of confidence, one, that the shooter has in the coach that this is the way it's going to be and I'm going to listen to him. I don't care what I see out there. When he says, you know, hold two right, then that's what I'm going to do, and I'm, you know, going to give it my best to get that shot to go exactly where he expects it to go. And on the other hand, the coach has to to totally depend that each of those shooters is going to do exactly what he tells them in order for the feedback to be accurate for the next shot. And the and the range itself, especially I could not. There's a massive amount of of uh, input, so different flags, different situations with mirage and maybe um, different mirages throughout the field. So these guys, are they have a big workload. And as a shooter, you're concentrated on one spot. You can't even um, begin to look at all of the different things when you're just focused and being ready to break that shot within a second from when they give it to you. So I'll, I can get a pretty good feel where I, where I think it's going to be, but they're looking at a, you know, a lot bigger field than what I am just through my rifle scope. Uh, Derek, you know, th- uh, this is Ev here. Hi, guys. Wanted to say hey, hello Dad. first. Hello. <laughs> um, you just talked about being able to quickly uh, send it once you get the command. And, you know, I, certainly after King of Two Mile and now definitely after the uh, the world, I've been seeing a lot of graffiti pictures on subways in Chicago and New York with the letters, uh, you know, LLR and uh, MGD, machine gun Derek, and load like like Rogers. Uh, you you just have that, <laughs> you just have that reputation for being really quick in loading and and sending it when ready. And my next question is actually for Ray. Um, Ray, knowing that about your team that they're able to do that, is that what influenced your decision to hold off and win? at the end to wait for the weather? I know I, I don't know much about what happened, only what I saw from Facebook. So if you wouldn't mind you know, relating to us what that, uh, what that was like and how you made your decision and how that worked out. Yeah, we came into the day 11 points down, and at 700 meters at the first yard line, we only made up two of those points. And then when we moved back to the 800-meter line, we shot even with the Australians. So, so going into 900, we were nine points down. Um, the, the, it, it really was a fairly simple, uh, you know, simple decision. If we shot at the same time as the Australians, we were not going to make up points on them. 
Okay, so so we couldn't follow what they were doing, and it, it was a gamble. Um, Brian Brian says, "Well, I, Brian said he thought it was going to calm down later on. You know, uh, later in the string, the the wind would die off a little bit. Um, but there's never a guarantee on that. I mean, I've done that before, and it's it's worked against us. But the, but it it didn't. There was no sense of starting at the same time they did. We had to find." some advantage, and that advantage really amounted to hoping that the wind actually did die off um, in the latter part of our time period, um, and, and it did. So, But that required you all to shoot a lot quicker, and had you not developed those skills, uh, maybe it wouldn't have worked out that well. It, it might not have. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of go back to uh, a John Madden quote from some interview way back when the you know, he was asked if they had done, if they did anything in practice differently when they were losing than when they were winning. And, and, and what he said was, he says, no, that you really can't. You, you have to live with the, you know, you have to live with the mistakes when you're losing. Um, the same mistakes you live with when you're winning, you have to live with when you're losing. Well, if you turn that around a little bit, basically what he means is, You've got to be prepared. You've got to you've got to look at where your weaknesses are and train um, train those out. So one of the things we looked at really from the very beginning and very very early in our cycle was I had these guys training to shoot fast. Um, and w- once we kind of got a feel for the idea, you know, who could shoot fast, who could shoot fast accurately. Which are, they're two different things. Anybody can pull a trigger quickly. <laughs> it's another thing entirely to be able to pull a trigger quickly and put it where where you're asking them to put it. Kelly and uh, I have once a standard found, joke when we go to the uh, to the gun club. His shots are accurate and mine are way off, but I shoot faster, and that's my excuse. You know, well they're they're off. They're still kind of doing the job, but I shoot fast. <laughs> right, but not right. as accurate. You get more yeah. let down range, so. Right. Uh, hey, guys, uh, I hate to interrupt, Ray, but we, hey, Ray, sorry to but we've got about a minute left, and, and I want to finish the segment up by uh, thanking Derek for being with us. Ray, you're going to be with us for the next segment as well, but I want to tell a little story. There's three times in my life I've been involved in a sporting event that I just think was the most fantastic thing I've ever witnessed, most exciting thing. I was at Game 7 of the World Series when the Diamondbacks beat the Yankees uh, in uh, Phoenix, and that to this day has been the most exciting sporting event I've ever been a part of. But twice in the last year, I've been at an event where Derek was shooting. And when Derek hit the two-mile plate, I was I saw that I was watching through the scope, and I saw that the plate start swinging. And I started yelling and jumping up and down before the guy had even said, Impact. Impact. So it, I was so excited. I thought, oh, wait, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> and then to watch you guys with Derek on the line with, uh, you know, less than five minutes left in the match uh, when he finished up, to, to be able to finish off probably one of the greatest comebacks in F-class history uh, and to be there and, and to, to witness that was truly two of the most exciting things. Derek, thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for being such a great guy. I really appreciate you being on the show. And uh, I'm going to have you back when we can take the entire hour and just you and I can sit and talk about shooting. All right. Sounds like a plan, Kelly. I appreciate being on.
Thanks. Great. Thanks, Thanks for Dad. being here. All right. Bye, guy. And Ray, you stand by. And all of our listeners, uh, stick around for the next uh, segment. It's going to be just as good. We're going to have Mitch Fitzpatrick coming up. You'll want to listen to this young man. Um, stay tuned for a short commercial break. to the pros we, we, we cover, everything. cover everything let your voice be heard voice america sports for over 40 years mcmillan usa has been at the leading edge of the gun stock industry the company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form function and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks from tactical to hunting to competitive shooting mcmillan stocks are designed to dominate their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148. Or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148. Or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are. In the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. A great first segment with uh, Derek Rogers and, uh, of course, Ray Gross. Uh, now we've got 
Mitch Fitzpatrick joining us, uh, a great shooter in his own right, a member of Team USA, gold medalist uh, with the Rutland Cup, which, uh, as we discussed a little bit earlier, was a four-man team that, that competed right alongside the eight-man teams for a world championship, uh, and also competed in the U25, the under-25 group, which has just been started, you know, because F-Class is such a new discipline, uh, it's only been around for, uh, what, 12, 13 years, uh, haven't had the um, growth to include a youth program that some of the other um, NRA sports have had, but they're working on it, and I think this was the first world champions that included the U25. Mitch, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, it Ray's on with us, and he's been talking about the world championships and, and shooting as from a captain's perspective and, and how it was possible for everyone. You were one of the 30 guys that were a part of, of Team USA and was, were not there strictly to be a, a U25 shooter. You were one of the men. Um, tell us why it was such a an important thing that you shoot with the under 25 people. And that really only occurred during the individuals because as a member of the Rutland team match, um, you shot with, with the adults. So talk about your mindset, how you got into the U 25 guys, uh, you know, situation and how that was for you. Yeah, um, I actually shot with the under-25 team in the Canadian Nationals um, you know, that was leading up to the World Championships. Um, I hadn't really actually heard a whole lot about the under-25s, what was going on, and then uh, Ray actually sent me an email um, saying that they were going to need uh, an extra shooter for the Canadian Nationals there because um, some of the, the under-25s weren't going to be there for both the Canadian Nationals and the Worlds. So... Um, they needed an extra person to be able to shoot the Canadian Nationals. Um, and so when we got there, I talked to Rick Jensen, who was kind of being the team captain, kind of organizing the other 25s, um, and decided, yeah, you know, I'd be able to shoot with them and uh, help them out so that they were that way they could compete because otherwise they wouldn't have enough to, to shoot as a team. But then, yeah, like you mentioned, in the individuals, um, I'd compete in the under-25 class just, just because of my age. <laughs> Yeah, let's explain for our listeners that you're 20 years old, uh, just recently yep. turned 20, right? Uh, no, I'm actually soon to be 21. Oh, okay, so I knew it was you were close to a birthday, either past or, or forward. But anyway, so you're going to yep. be 21. So the group is under 25. So it's not like you were 24 years and, and 11 months and just getting ready to get out of the division. You shot with a group that was right in your wheelhouse you you belong there uh, age-wise um and you brought a lot of maturity and experience for our listeners if you haven't listened to any of our shows before you may not know that mitch was the 2016 king of two mile he's won several other um long extreme long range matches uh, this 
guy can shoot and i hate to call him a kid because when i saw the <laughs> u25 photo on facebook i, I said is that the coach in the middle <laughs> because he looked so much bigger and more mature with his big furry beard that uh you know it, he seems a little out of place but but i want to explain to everybody that you were not out of place it, you really it was a natural for you to shoot with this team um so ray when you had all of these 30 guys and you ask Mitch to, to join the, the team, the U25 team for the Canadian Nationals or suggested that they needed a shooter. What was the mindset? And well, you know, in this particular case, we're going to have one of our shooters shooting with, with another team. Well, it was, I mean, it was kind of a last minute thing from our side too. I'd gotten a, uh, a phone call uh, from Rick Jensen, um, asking if, if Mitch was available. Um, he, he, it seemed like, I believe the situation was, as Mitch described, that they, they had some folks coming in, but, but they weren't going to get there until later. Um, so they were, they were a little shorthanded. Uh, what we did on our side, because Mitch was in the mix to be selected as a shooter for the Rutland squad, um, you know, we, we, and, and he, since he wouldn't be shooting with us, we, we tried to get a hold of the, uh, the plot sheets from the uh, international match, the, the match during the Canadian Nationals. It's called the International. Um, uh, so, that, so we'd have something to uh, evaluate you know, his performance versus a handful of other guys who were up for the same few slots. And, and obviously Mitch uh, did well enough to, to make that cut. Great. Hey, Mitch, I remember talking to you on the last day, the, the day of the championship. Um, the uh, Your team did not win the Rutland Cup, but it had absolutely nothing to do with the way you shot. Because if I remember correctly, you told me you only dropped two targets, uh, two points on the last day. Is that correct? Um, actually, I think you ended up dropping four. Um, oh. Me, along with um, you know Matt Schwarzkopf, Colin Wind, um, I think we make a pretty good team. At the first two targets, 700 meters and 800 meters, um, we shot clean. We didn't drop any points. Um, then the wind was up quite a bit more during our 900-meter string, and we ended up dropping four points. But So, you know, me along with Matt, we only dropped four points for the whole day, and I think I think even on the eight-man team, I think uh, the best score was dropping four points all day. So I think it was pretty good. Yeah, and I wanted to make that point so our listeners got an idea. And that was shooting side-by-side side on the same range in the same conditions with the eight-man team, all of the teams. I wasn't aware of anybody else. And, and I think, and I, I know Derek had the best score in in all of the uh, team match of the USA team. Um, but I, I don't know what any of the other shooters did. I know the Australian shooter, Mark Fairbairn, I know he was clean through um, the first two stages as well, but I don't think he did nearly as well as you did in that last uh, stage. So uh, I wanted the, the listeners to understand that you truly are a really good shooter, regardless of how old you are. So, um, And it wasn't a, a fact that there were 30 men and you were of the top 12 because – the, the top eight were chosen for the, the, the full team, and then the next four shot on the Rutland team. A pretty good testament to where you stack up among the, sh- the best shooters uh, in the United States. Yeah, it's uh, 
said, I've, <laughs> I've been shooting F-Class now for four years, so I'm not truly a beginner. Um, you know, because I shot at the, the Worlds in 2013, and, you know, I've gotten, to, I've gotten to learn from, you know, the best shooters in the world, really. Um, and so I think that has a lot to do with, um, you know, my ability and how far I've come in the last four years. Um, you know, because to become good, you either got to practice a lot or, you know, that learning curve can really be accelerated by learning from the best. If I could tell hey, you, one of one of the things that's one of the things that I learned too uh, over the years uh, being part of the team. So like I said, I tried out for the '99 Palma team, and I I, admit, I didn't make the cut for that. But just being in the tryouts, being around those top shooters, you know, I learned. I and in fact, I completely changed the way I shot between the first stage of the tryouts and the second stage. I was very slow, very methodical. I mean, I'd aim for 30 seconds, and I, you know, it was a perfect shot. But the problem was, of course, the limbs changed four times between when you pulled your eye out of the scope and when you actually took the shot. Um, so I changed. I mean, I, I learned to just roll over and take that shot right away, and I clawed my way back, but I didn't. I still didn't make the cut. But over the years, being around top shooters, even back in the day playing basketball, being around the better the better players, it just makes you. Uh, a better competitor. You learn so much more from the top, top, uh, you know, the top competitors. Well, I agree with that. It, it happens in golf too. If if you're playing with twenty handicappers all the time, you don't improve much. But if you're playing with the single digit guys and and you get around people who play better, you just seem to play better. Um, I, I yeah. liked the fact that Mitch talked about you know being around uh, the better shooters. You you reiterated that. Last night on um, the Shark Tank, one of the, the people who was on to try to sell something, he says, you hang around with four broke guys, you, you'll be the fifth broke guy. You hang around with a few billionaires, and the chances that you'll be a billionaire is much better. So kind of kind of the same thing when you're talking about shooting. And Mitch, you've aligned yourself with some of the best shooters in this country. You have a great um, relationship with Paul Phillips. Uh, obviously, the 900 uh, overall, 900 meter overall individual gold medalist. Uh, we all know what Derek's done, and, and he's been a teammate and a friend to you. So um, you've done the right things in that, and I think that's why you've uh, accelerated your learning curve. And uh, I know how much you shoot, so that's a big part of it as well. And that's a yeah. great segue, Mitch. I wanted to uh, get into a little bit about your past. I've known you for over a year now, and I keep learning new things about you. I mean, not only are you a great <laughs> shooter, but you do some phenomenal work for applied ballistics. Um, you have your own uh, machines uh, company where you're able to manufacture rifles, and you're going to school full-time. So why don't you tell us all how you balance that and have time uh, for that beer when you do turn 21? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the time, uh, I definitely don't have a whole lot of spare time on my hands, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I originally, when I really, uh, originally started getting into shooting, um, you know, back in high school, I, when you're in high school, it's kind of hard to afford the really good equipment and the high quality rifles, you know, to be competitive. And when I first started looking at competitive shooting, um, mainly F class, because that's what I kind of ran into first here in Michigan, I, I, right from the start I approached it as I wanted to be competitive like I didn't look at it like I'm just you know gonna kind of go into this and just kind of slowly learn like especially at that time not knowing anyone you know I didn't want to show up and you know be the guy that 
was obviously the beginner. You know, I wanted to be really competitive. I wanted to have practiced at home and be good. So, you know, along with that, I wanted to have the right equipment, and it just wasn't going to be in the budget. So I just worked and worked and worked all summer and saved as much as I could and bought all the components um, and got access to some machine tools that my uncles and my dad had acquired over the years and just kind of had around on our family farm, and that included a lathe and a mill and all that. And so me and my dad, along with help of my uncles, we um, built built the rifle. I actually machined out the action and everything. Um, and so that was, you know, about five years ago we did that. And that's what kind of got the ball rolling. And so that was my that was my entrance into the shooting world was through the gunsmithing machining aspect. Um, and then when I started competing here in Michigan, I got hooked up with the uh, Michigan F-Class team. Um, which Brian is, you know, the head coach of that. And so, you know, making that connection with Brian was huge. I mean, that would, could, could be the <laughs> single biggest event that, you know, got me to where I am in, uh, in the shooting industry right now. But, um, so started doing the, the gunsmithing thing. Then said, once I got hooked up with Brian, um, started doing some work for applied ballistics. Um, that's, that's been growing. I, you know, I'm still working for Brian. Um, so between gunsmithing and applied ballistics, that takes up a lot of time. And then the competitive shooting, uh, like you touched on earlier, we also do the, the ELR shooting. So uh, between practicing and traveling to ELR matches and then doing all the F-class stuff, um, definitely, definitely short on time. And then on top of that, I'm also still a full-time student uh, at Michigan Tech University, um, pursuing my degree in mechanical engineering. That's, that's a great uh, degree to have to help in, in anything related to the firearms industry. You have a company yeah, called yep. uh, Lethal Precision Mag? Lethal Mag Precision? Uh, what was the question? The name of your company. Yeah, yeah Lethal Precision Arms um, is okay. the, the gunsmithing company I started with my dad. And how long ago did you come up with that name? Um, a couple of years ago. Okay. The, the reason I ask is because I wondered if it had anything to do with the, the round that you developed for the King of Two Mile, because that that's basically a wildcat that I think it's an original. Um, let's talk about yep. that a little bit and, and how you ended up with that. As the, the King of Two Mile um, champion from 2016, and um, you were... Uh, I think seventh or somewhere around there. Refresh my memory. In this year, uh, yeah. this year I came in fourth. Fourth, okay. So it wasn't just a fluke, flash in the pan. One time, you were right up there with uh, with everyone else. You shot a, a round this year that was totally new. Nobody else had anything like it. Talk about that. How you developed it and and how you came up with that. Yeah. So um, when me and Brian first started looking at doing the ELR thing. Um, I really wanted to build a rifle that was going to uh, ballistically essentially beat everything else that was out there. Um, and, you know, looking at the different options, there was a couple of Wildcats, some other stuff some other guys had done, um, but nothing that was really out there and available. Um, it really would have been just as much work for me to try to pursue someone else's Wildcat as it was for me to do my own. So at that point... Um, just seemed logical to, you know, go the whole way and design the whole cartridge. Um, 
and it kind of worked out. The the parent case is a 585 Hubble Express. Um, it's kind of random. I contacted Ed Hubble, the guy who designed that cartridge, found out he only lives like 20 miles from me. Um, so I drove over there, picked up some cases, um, started doing the design work, uh, got with Manson, Dave Manson at Manson Reamers, um, got the Reamer, ended up doing a couple different revisions to that, um, got it working really well. Um, you know, we used that along with uh, that prototype bullet that we worked on back in 2016, um, put it all together, and by the time that all came together, it was only two weeks before the match. Um, but we at that point, we were pretty comfortable with how it was working um, and went into the match and really haven't changed much since then. It uh, has been working really well. Uh, as a businessman to a, a businessman, have you uh, registered that uh, that cartridge name and uh, done all the uh, legal end of it? Um, to be honest, I haven't. That's a whole other side of things I haven't even really gotten into yet. Um, just because of you know how small the business is, but um, you know that's again that's the side of things I need to start getting into that I just haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah, I, I understand, but I, I will tell you from a businessman's standpoint, um, IP is probably the most valuable part of a business, and you will probably kick yourself at some point down the road when uh, somebody else manages to uh, do the same thing you've done and then they take advantage of it. So I'm encouraging you, um, you can figure out how to do it on your own if you want to. It, it's, you know, 1500 bucks and probably be well spent. So I, I, I suggest that you do that. I want to get Ray in here for just a minute. Ray, um, we've talked a little bit, but I've never heard you talk about uh, ELR or extreme long range, you, you don't seem to have gotten the bug. Now, I know that you have been totally focused for the last um, four years on the world championships, and I know that you have to make a decision at some point in the not-too-distant future on whether or not you're going to be involved in the 2021 team that's going to South Africa. Um, anything you can tell us about that decision-making process? Well, as far as the, the, the extreme long range, I mean, I've kind of, it was one of those things I sort of dabbled with it with uh, Paul and, and John, you know, when they might go out and do it. But it wasn't something, I didn't have the rifle to do it. And they generally bring me out to do some coaching or something. Um, uh, so, and, and, and yes, this last four years um, between work, between the team, between um, you know, personal relationship stuff. It's been, um, it's been all I could do. So, so it was just something that, uh, um, you know, you, you can only be good at so many things and sometimes you got to choose what those things are going to be. I agree with you a hundred percent. Being good is important. And I've often looked at things and said, well, playing guitar, for example, I can spend two and a half, three hours a day playing guitar to get to where I want to be. Um, which means that I won't be spending that two and a half to three hours a day reloading ammunition or on the range laying down, you know, learning at my age, learning to shoot, really. Uh, so mm -hmm. I've opted not to be a competitive shooter because I am not going to go out there and do it poorly. So uh, that's sure. why I love being a part of the 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 whole scenario by being a sponsor and being there and, and living through the excitement like we did uh, up in Connaught, but I don't have to put in the, 
the hard work that it takes to get to where I'd want to be if I were competing. So, you know, those are decisions you have to make. That's right. Um, Mitch, what's, what's your plan? I know you're going to finish school and that's kind of your top priority. You've got a business that you're working on. You, you want to be competitive and I'm sure that you've already started making plans to go to South Africa in uh, 2021. But kind of give us an overview of how you would like to see your life unfold over the next 10 years. Um, uh, over the next 10 years, uh, I'll definitely still be in the, the firearms industry for sure. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's what I do. It's my entire life is shooting and, um, you know, especially competitive shooting and everything. Um, the main plan is I'll, I'll probably stay with, uh, Brian at applied ballistics. Um, you know, we've got a pretty good working relationship there. Um, and I have become pretty involved with a lot of what applied ballistics is doing. Uh, and, uh, also along with my mechanical engineering degree, I'm also getting a, you know, cause I'm majoring in mechanical engineering, but I'm also minoring in aerospace, um, which really helps with the, the ballistic side of things. You know, uh, Brian Litz is a aerospace engineer. Um, so I'm also getting that background, but between the, the gunsmithing, um, gun manufacturing, uh, applied ballistics, all that, um, that, that really is, um, essentially my plan in the foreseeable future, um, especially in the next 10 years. You know, that's terrific. We've had Brian on the show. Everybody that knows him knows he's a great guy. He's very serious, very goal-oriented. He's very focused on what's in front of him. And the fact that he kind of took a, a young man, under, well, maybe even a kid at, at the time when you met, under his wing uh, is a great testament of the type of person that he is, but I absolutely know for a fact that had you not been really special and had something to offer, he probably wouldn't have spent nearly as much time with you as he has. So that's really a testament to you and 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 what you've got to offer in, in terms of applied ballistics and and how you contribute. Yeah, it. Uh like I said, when I when I first got started into this, when I was you know fifteen, sixteen, I kind of went went all in. I I spent so much time researching everything I could in the the firearms industry, especially long range shooting. I mean, I I swear I've read every single forum post on all the different major forums and everything, uh, and I just I had a really good understanding of what was going on. You know, like I mentioned, I wasn't going to go into it. Um, you know, almost blind and show up, you know, kind of, you know, it's going to kind of a situation where it's going to take everyone to help you, you know, get on target. Um, you know, you know, I wanted to you know, come in competitive and I think, I think that's what Brian recognized is that, you know, even when I was 15 and 16, I had a pretty vast understanding of the, the industry and the shooting world. Um, you know, and it's only grown since, um, so that's, and I, I agree with you. I mean, Brian, Brian's a great guy. And like I, like I mentioned earlier, probably the, you know, meeting him and shooting with him and, um, you know, eventually working with him, it's probably the single biggest event that got me where I am in the, the, the firearms industry. We had talked a little bit, Ray, you, you neglected to answer my question about um, plans for 2021. Have you made them yet? Um, I haven't yet. I, one of the things I'm going to do, actually, um, after everybody gets back, let's the dust settle a little bit. I'm going to find out how many 
how much of the team is able to make the commitment to go to South Africa. And that'll be a big factor in whether um, I continue on as well. Um, you know, if we, if we, if, if it's going to be a team where we're, we're starting out with a, a lot of fresh people, which is a good thing. Um, I'm not sure though. I'm, I'm the guy to lead that. Uh, I, 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 we had talked in the earlier segment about competitiveness. If I go to South Africa, it's not, I don't want to go there for a, a beautiful trip. I want to go there to win. And, and in order to do that, we're going to need, a good core of the team to uh, be able to be able to make that trip as well. I can understand that consideration. And I really like the fact that um, you kind of epitomize a statement by Clint Eastwood in the outlaw Josie Wells, where he says a man's got to know his limitations. Uh, The fact that you, you know what would work for you and what wouldn't is really cool. I've only got two minutes left and I want to get to, to Mitch on this Uh, one for you, Ray, I will commit if you're the team captain, I will commit to be a gold sponsor for the 2021 U S team to, to prepare for the World Cup. So I'm making that commitment to you. I may All not right. make we, that well, commitment depending on who Okay, good deal. And Mitch, I, I would love to ask you, I know you said I'm still going to be under 25 at the next World Championships. What I would love for you is I know your goal is to shoot on that eight-man team and win a gold medal, but you can do a lot as an under 25 shooter. And one thing in particular you can do is to show a lot of other young shooters that we're serious about this because look, Mitch Fitzpatrick is on our team. So if you would make a commitment uh, and I will help you in any way I can to promote the junior team and to get that team to be a significant team, I'll even help raise the funds for the, the trip over to, um, South Africa. Uh, will you be the man that's going to represent the under 25 team as a part of being a part of the team USA? Uh, you know, I would actually really love to be a part of uh, an under-25 team. You know, if we get a bunch of serious under-25s together, um, could get together and practice and make a, you know, a real run at it, I think we could be highly competitive against even the adult teams. Um, so I would, I would definitely be interested in doing that. Okay, well, I'll work with you on it. Guys, I hate to tell you this. We're out of time. It's been terrific having both of you on. Ray, thanks for being with us this whole hour. I know it's been a drain on your time, but I appreciate it. And, no and Mitch, thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed having no, you. And we'll have you both back. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for being here with us. Uh, it's going to be a great weekend. Why don't you go out and enjoy the great outdoors here in, in this great country? Uh, really appreciate you being listeners, and we'll see you next Friday. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.